Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. So, uh, we're in a series called Life in the Big City, in case you're joining us, uh, and Hebrews 13, the end of Hebrews, is sort of describing for us what, uh, what it means to be a citizen of that city that's beyond us, that's uh, eternal, that we're all heading toward, and what it's like to live here even w- with the values of that city. And so uh, maybe, maybe an image is better. Uh, we, um, we get our dictates from this bigger city, the city that is beyond, and we've said there's a city, it's a community. Uh, at the heart of this city is relationships, relationship with God and relationship with each other. So uh, in community, we experience God. That's what we're learning in Hebrews. We experience God in each other in a very transforming way. I get what I need on the journey to that city. That's one of the things we've learned about faith. First of all, it is a journey. And secondly, I need things along the way that I can't provide for myself. The journey's hard and I need community in order uh, to get there. It's not a solo journey and it's not a solo end. So um, you realize that life in community, just by its very nature, cannot be about you. What we learn in this is it cannot be about you and it cannot be about here. So uh, the faith journey is constantly orienting myself toward this place and its values because we have no lasting city here so we seek a city that is to come. Let me remind you, faith, which we talk about this faith journey, faith is not a position, and it's not a stance. It's not just simply believing in some block of material, of data. It's an active, interactive reality that is constantly moving me this direction toward those values, becoming more and more like what I will ultimately be. That's kind of what the journey is like. Now, we've learned a couple things about this. We learned from Esau that if you're on this journey, but your focus is here, okay, um, that's going to devastate faith. Remember, for a meal, he sold his birthright. For something here, present, he gave up this. People do it all the time. Uh, so wanting both, he lost both. That's sort of the warning that sort of is the canopy over what we're looking at here in Hebrews. So Esau's an important figure for us. You can remember, maybe a better image of this you'll remember is in the Old Testament when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and he rescued Lot out of there. 
And he said, don't look back. Don't look back at that city. I'm taking you somewhere else. I remember Lot's wife looked back. And it said something about her heart. And she disintegrated right there. I mean, she just turned into salt, which is, in, in, in those times, salt. If salt sort of uh, covered the area, it was barren. And nothing could grow or, or develop. And so... It basically was a window into the fact that her faith wasn't substantive at all because her focus was here. Uh, But then you have a contrasting figure in, in, in in our text, and that is Moses. And I want you to see, he's unlike Esau. And he's unlike Lot's wife. And uh, he's more like what we're supposed to be in this journey. And I want you to see what it says about him. It says, by faith... It's the journey. When he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, his mom put him out in a basket. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, in, in all uh, you know, right thinking, you think, man, this is a better deal. He chose rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. That's what it looks like to be on this faith journey. So Moses literally, and what's really important about this is, you know, that we all grow up a certain way, have certain experiences, things that get locked in our head. Some things uh, are really great. Some things are not healthy at all. And here Moses is having to change his whole identity around this newfound faith that he has and his movement in his journey toward God. Even his upbringing wasn't an excuse not to be what God wanted him to be. And so he chose the people of God. That's the community. Rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, he regarded abuse, suffered for Christ, to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So you can see, it didn't just change his identity when he found Christ and when he became, it didn't just change his identity, it changed his values. I don't care how I grew up. I don't care what they told me was important and what they told me was valuable. I have new treasures. I have greater wealth. He could make that sort of value judgment because of Christ in his life. And his eyes were fixed forward. Remember, his eyes are towards something else. That's the journey. And then notice what he says. By faith, he left Egypt. He walked away from that present city. Without fearing the king's anger, for he preserved, or he persevered, that's the journey piece. As though, as though he could see one who is invisible. This is invisible. But by faith he sees it so powerfully that it changes his identity and it changes his values. It changes his security. He is so identified with this that his entire concept of himself has changed. So my relationship with God and the community changed me through and through. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. My hopes, my dreams, my, my emotions, my affections, the things I love, the things I desire, my whole approach to life, the things that make me tick at the deepest place, the gospel is affected. And so we've learned that even though the city's invisible, faith is not abstract. I don't, I don't want you to forget that line throughout this entire series. Faith is not abstract. While this is sort of out there in that city, the way beyond, it's invisible, it affects me actually in reality right here and it changes literal things about my life. Including my identity and my values. That's what we're learning here and the completely countercultural to the world that's constantly being drilled into our heads. We're at an amazing disadvantage in the universe and the culture that we live in now because we're constantly being drilled in our heads, the culture that's here. And we don't even know to the degree to which it has affected us. So we're talking about this countercultural world and um, I want you to see uh, this new word that comes into play. It's a very similar word. That's, what I, that's the reason I have these words up here so that you can see them because there's a real word play going on in this text. And what you see happening is, this is the word Philadelphia, which tells us about brotherly love. This is uh, Philosenius, which tells us to love of strangers. And then Aphelagoras, no love of money. So he tells us what to love, And he tells us what not to love. When you come to Christ, your loves change. Your values change. Your affections change. At the deepest part of who you are. They impact us visibly. So in other words, even though the city is invisible, the effect of that city on me is is quite literal. It's not abstract. I'm not allowed to be an individual. Individualistic. Individualism is out once you come to Christ. Brotherly love. I can't, I've got to accept other people. So it it broadens my, you say, well, I'm not really good at it. I understand that, but the gospel changes it. It takes away your love for money, changes your values. So uh, if if I'm in a community with people who love God, these things are getting drilled into my head. Um, I can't just think about me. And that includes sex and money as we've learned here in Hebrews. Um, As one commentator said, that invisible city affects your bed and your bankroll here. They're not off the table. Our culture says this, Our culture says sex is nothing and money is everything. Sex means nothing. You can change your sex. Uh, You can have sex anywhere and anytime you want. It doesn't mean anything. Money, however, is everything. God says just the opposite. Sex is something. Sex is a big deal. God values it far more than this culture does. 
And on the other hand, God says, money is nothing. I happen to uh, uh, have this, because of Jimmy Callahan, I get to see uh, a doctor in Fort Worth who's the back doctor for uh, TC's, the orthopedic guy for TCU's football team. And uh, he's, he's months out, you can't get into him. Jimmy used to work with him, they're good friends. And he made a phone call and I got in. I got to know him a little bit, great guy godly man, to have him on TCU sideline is, is a gift. Uh, and um, so I, I saw him recently and uh, he's a, an, an interesting character. Uh, I, I don't know how to describe him fully to you, but uh, I was, we were talking and I was telling him about uh, ministry because he knows I'm a pastor and because we, we, I've seen him before, years ago. And so uh, we're talking and everything, and he's telling me the impact that he and some other believers are having on the TCU football players. And, uh, and he said, you know, some of these guys are about to get really rich. And they have no idea, and they've come from really, really, really rough backgrounds. And they're, he says, and I'm trying to help them understand what's going to happen when this kind of money comes into their life. And I, I'm engaged, I'm, I'm with them, and so I just sort of threw out the line, yeah, man, they gotta learn money's just not enough. That's what I just threw, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to be engaged, right? He stops, comes forward, and he has this sort of, I mean, he, it could be an intense face. And he looks at me with these big, brown, deep eyes, and he goes, no, it's nothing. And I went, that's right, it's nothing. <laughs> I got out my wallet and I handed it to him. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> and what he, was, what he meant by that, not that money can't be used effectively, but what he was trying to say, it doesn't have the value that people give it. Not even close. So money and sex are these two very powerful realities. Um... That knowing God changes. And by the way, a lot of your spiritual life, whether you know this or like this, revolves around these two issues. Uh, And how they're played out in your life. And there's two things you got to remember, but we're learning about God through this text. Because purity and generosity are big elements of the future city. Values of that city that we, have to, that we have to live in. And that's because of our purity and generosity. It's because we have a holy God, which Hebrews has taught us. But we also have a very gracious and generous God. And we're supposed to be like him. So they're very basic and they're very telling, these two things. And they often are viewed together. The Jews put them together a lot because of the two commandments. Seven and eight are adultery and stealing. So money and sex have always been put together. If you go on Google and just, uh, just Google the relationship between sex and money, watch how many articles come up. I read a bunch this morning. Uh, the connection between sex and money. It's so easy to be selfish in these two categories, which is the opposite of community. Uh, but these, these, these concepts here, 
uh, are related, not just in the Old Testament and the seven in, in the commandments, uh, but also uh, in this text. I mean, conceptually, but also grammatically. Because remember, remember the he doesn't use the verb in verse four about honor marriage. It's just marriage, honored marriage. Is the predicate adjective and a noun. He does the same thing in the next line in verse five to say that without the love of money, that's just one word, and then conduct. So he uses the same grammatical connection. As, and, and that means that he's bringing the same punch that he had with, the, with sex and marriage and the same imperative that we supply, but it's all about bringing the, the punch to this principle uh, grammatically. Uh, so it's a gut shot. Now, let me say this about the two con- about money and sex. Um, in some ways, this, this might be surprising at first, stay with me. In some ways, sex is easier in the, these verses four, five, and six. And, and, and the reason is it's very cut and dried. Remember, I mean, it's the, it, there's only one spot for it. <laughs> you, you, you know if you're out of bounds very easily on either side of the bed. Before marriage or, or after. Um, so there's clear boundaries. It's not subjective at all. I mean, if you ever just wanted God to say, well, what's, just tell me what, what you want me to do and not do, boom, there it is. But when it comes to money, it's a little bit different. And I think it's the reason why some of us struggle a little bit. Because I think many of us would just like God to just say, all right, God, you know how much I have? How much do you want me to give? Because I, I, I don't know if I'm being generous or not. I don't know if I'm good about this or not. Could you just give me a number? How many times, I can't tell you how many times I've interacted with people about this topic and all they want, just give me a number. Just make this easy. Just give me a number. You don't get a number. You don't get that specifics here. No, what you get here, instead of with the sex, instead of getting one verse, you get two verses. And you get two Old Testament texts quoted at you. Uh, technically three, but two are combined to, to make one, and so you got... And so what he has to do with this topic for us is drill down a little deeper. He's got to dig a little deeper, and we see what we see in these two verses is, is the depth of transformation that the gospel should have on you, kind of like Moses. Say, Moses, what kind of impact did the gospel have on you when you heard it? When you heard what Christ did, It affected the, the way I thought about my own upbringing. That's how far it impacted me. And so what we're going to see here is the depth of transformation and kind of how it works in regard to money. At least that's how Hebrews is going to show it to us. And so we're going to get to uh, Hebrews uh, 13.5. Your conduct must be free of the love of money. And you must be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, and I will never abandon you. That's the verse. Now, there's another verse. That's verse 6. That's next week. Uh, One verse at a time, folks. One verse at a time. All right? Um, So, uh, here's the key to this text, this, this this noun right here. Your conduct. 
it literally means a kind of life. So whatever, the, whatever, you, you, whatever your faith has brought you in relationship with God, it changes the kind of life you live as it relates to money. That's a given reality. That's what he's saying here. There is a certain kind of lifestyle that people who know God live when it comes to money. And people who are in community don't lose the community thing. Are oriented toward the big city. They have a certain attitude toward money and they live differently as a result. So, Let's look at this text here. What I've done is I've just kind of charted this text for you so you can see the depths that it goes to. So at the very, be- at the very top, it's the conduct, how you actually spend your money and, and the love of money. But then he's gonna drill down below the surface. This is something he doesn't do with sex in the topic before, but he does in this one. He drills down to this idea of contentment, be content, what does it mean to conduct yourself without loving money? Well, it's a little deeper than that. There's a kind of contentment below the surface that makes this conduct possible. So if this doesn't exist, then you're not going to be able to function here on the surface. But then he goes one step further, and he talks about this whole idea of security. And being alone. So, this is what it looks like if you drill down on this topic. And it might help us with this whole issue of money um, by looking at it. So let me just define contentment for you. Might look at it a little bit, little bit more next week. But for the most part, let's just simply get this one out of the way. Because this is the emphasis. Um. So this is that deep, settled sense uh, of inner peace that's not affected by what you have or don't have. That's the idea. It's not affected by what you have or don't have, that, that inner peace. It stays pretty steady. Um, so whether you have a lot or a little, you're not disturbed by either of those. That's hard. It's hard not to have flutterings when you have a lot. It's hard not to have flutterings if you don't have enough. Paul called it a secret, remember. And it's really not much of a secret because he tells you in the Philippians 4 what the secret is to contentment. Um, but in other words, your sense of worth and your sense of security are not affected by whether you have or don't have. That's what this word means. Now you can see why the surface is so, in, so much in turmoil because this is, not, this is a tough thing to experience. So if you have turmoil at this level, okay, I mean, this is like the, this is like the earthquake below the water line that creates the tsunami on the top. So if you're disturbed here, you will not be handling this right. 
The absence or presence of money is not the most important thing. He's talking about an attitude and a feeling toward it. We all have feelings toward money whether we have it or not. This is irrelevant to how much you have. Okay? We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, but what happens at this level here is what bubbles up is I got, I got, I, I've got to secure myself. I've got to hoard I've got to become a, like a, an obsessive saver. Or you become an obsessive spender because your worth is tied to either, either having a lot in the bank or, or, or showing that you have a lot of accumulations. The, the sick stuff that works inside of us. And so there's a constant sort of low-grade dissatisfaction all the time. Um... And this is, for most of us, we're so used to this feeling, we, we don't even, we, it's such a habit to feel dissatisfied, we can't even imagine peace on the surface. So, um, the question becomes, here's the question, has the gospel, has the truth of what Jesus done for us, penetrated deeper than just the surface. The writer of Hebrews is saying the gospel has got to penetrate you at a deeper level and to the ultimate level. That is an incredibly important question. Has the gospel penetrated the surface of your life to bring this kind of peace? Now, because uh, if you're not, you'll have turmoil on the top. So if you say things like this, if you say things like this, then it prob then it's very probably hasn't hasn't I know I should manage my money better, but or if you say, I know I should be more generous, but I'm just not. Or if you say, I don't have enough to be generous then it's very probable that the gospel has not penetrated down into this area of your life. Because uh, these are the kind of things you say if there's not some greater truth driving the surface. So um, there's a pilot who is uh, near and dear to me flight instructor who, inf who trains instructors. One of them, uh, he trains, always, he's been up with him four or five times, always takes his seatbelt off mid-flight. And of course it's required for, for the instructors to have their, their seatbelts on and so he just wouldn't respond to any verbal admonitions. You need to put your seatbelt on. And so after four or five flights like this, this pilot who was very near and dear to me uh, said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So he grabs the, I think it's a steering wheel. I don't know what it's called in a plane. He just pulled on it like this. And when he did, the instructor next to him popped up and hit the roof and passed out completely. 
got knocked out. He said, I go, oh my gosh, I've killed him. Oh my gosh, I don't know what I've done. So he's panicking a little bit, like, because he's just a little bit over there. Like this. And so, uh, aren't you loving this story so far? Oh, I was loving this story when I heard it. So he's really nervous, because of course he didn't want the guy to be seriously hurt. So a little, little, just not too much of it. He comes to. He comes to. He's doing this. And, and he says, you know, to the pilot that's near and dear to me, um, what happened? Uh, turbulence. We, we hit some turbulence. And he goes, I, I need to put my seatbelt on. Puts his seatbelt on. And uh, the pilot near and dear to me says, yeah, good idea. That's a good idea. And he hasn't taken it off since. Now, I, I tell you that story because this is, a, this is how many of us live our spiritual lives. We know the things we probably ought to do, but it isn't until, it isn't until we're hit hard by something that the truth that's rolling around in here grabs a hold of our heart and changes something like what we how we handle things, how we do things, whether we'll actually get around to doing it. That's the kind of truth that the gospel is supposed to bring to you. It's supposed to bring you an experience that doesn't just get in here, well, I know a lot of things about spirituality. They never change me at the deepest level. The gospel is designed to penetrate deeper uh, into your heart so that you actually feel not just eternal security. Oh, I'll be secure one day when I'm there. Now that you feel security now. You feel secure now. And if the gospel you've heard or believed in isn't securing you now, then it hasn't, then it hasn't penetrated to your heart. Now, the verse we're looking at right here is an incredibly powerful verse. And I want to show you something about it. Because this section right here, uh, where he says, um, right here, this, this piece, this last piece. So we, we, we've seen conduct a little bit. We're going to talk more about that later. But then we've seen the contentment. And now he drills down a little bit deeper with, these, with this text here. And grammatically speaking, it's very possible that the verse you're looking at right now is like the most powerful verse in your Bible. From a grammatical standpoint. Um, so if you're saying something like, you know, I really should be, but the writer of Hebrews is about to go just like this. And you're about to hit your head really hard so that a truth that's just bouncing around in there might make it to your heart. Here are the, it's just from here to here. It's just from here to here. I want to show you some things about it. First of all, 
it's emphatic because the word himself is the first word in the sentence, in the Greek sentence, himself. So it's emphatic, it's intensive because he's using an intensive pronoun on top of the verb which he said. So he himself said. And then he has said is perfect tense, which means it has sort of, uh, um, it has a stable validity to it. Perfect tense is something that's happened in the past that stays true. So he's about to reach into the past, give you a principle that, has, that is true and has always been true. Just right here in this. Then he's going to quote basically 30, Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8, put them together. And then Joshua 1, 5. The importance of these two verses is Moses saying to Joshua at the end of Deuteronomy 30, God will be with you when you get into that, to go to that promised land. He'll be, he'll be with you all the way. And then, he's, then, he, then the Lord comes right to Joshua and tells him himself, I'm going to be with you on the way to that journey. Well, don't forget this image. I'm going to be with you on this journey. You're not alone. That's what he's saying. This is a journey. And what God is saying, what God, hey, what I said to Joshua, I'm saying to you. That's what he's saying. So he takes these two verses and sort of makes some gr- a grand conclusion out of it. And then he again uses two concepts of leaving. I will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, I'm never going to just wander off and I'm never just going to stomp away. Do you see those two? You know how sometimes you do it and you, you wander off you don't even know where you're at. Where, where am I? And then sometimes you dart. God says, I'll never do either of those to you. I'm never just wandering away. And then he uses what we call uh, emphatic negation. And maybe the strongest in your Bible. Five times he uses the word not. I will not, 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 not. I myself say it. I've said it before. I meant what I said then. It's true now. I'll never wander from you and I'll never dart off from you. It cannot be said any more profoundly than it is right here in relation to money. Now, Let me say a few things about this. Next week, well, I'll tell you about next week in a minute. Let me help you with this. Because if you're like me, these are the kind of questions that drive me. I read this and I go, I need that truth at home in my heart. Anybody else need that? I need this truth at home in my heart. So we got to figure out how to get it there. So. What the gospel allows you to do, what the writer is saying here, is the writer is forcing you to put all reality in perspective. That's the whole image of this city and this city. What he wants you to do is that by faith, he wants you to be a person who can do what Moses did. Make value judgments. 
when you put your faith in Christ, it ought to help you see through the illusion of the world here and the reality of the one here. That's one of the gifts of the gospel. That you're able to now, with the wonder of this truth, come to a proper assessment of everything about your life. Everything about your life should be being properly assessed by us because of the gospel, because of what we know and because of who we have, because of what was done for us. So there's two kinds of people. There's the first kind of people that we've all felt being alone, but there's some people right now who feel really alone. And being alone scares you. And some people I've noticed, and sometimes even in my own life, I don't know it's loneliness that is, is, is what's bothering me. I wouldn't necessarily put loneliness on the tag. But there are other people in this room who know full well loneliness is what it is. And none of us like that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible word. It's a lonely word. And you know... Reading some articles on it this week, millennials uh, are, the, are self-admittedly the loneliest people group in history. Um, a third of the millennials recognize that loneliness in their life. Um, now, this is the kind of loneliness that people usually in their, from 50s to 70s feel. Older people generally feel the kind of loneliness that the younger generation is feeling now. I mean, and they're identifying it as loneliness. See, like I said, it's not always identified in us, this, this sort of uneasiness in us, this dissatisfaction. It's not always tagged loneliness. And so now we've got two ends of, of, of reality experiencing it. Uh, University of Pennsylvania is trying to figure out what it is. It's not complicated, although they just say, hashtag Technology. They have more friends than ever on social media, but no real ones. There's no real connections. Uh, Somebody who really does tangibly care for you. And so that just brings a wave of the whole principle of community throughout this text and how important it is. But you might feel the loneliness and it might scare you to death. give you a conversation I had for 90 minutes this week with someone. Who feels exactly this. The other person in here, "Ah, you don't feel loneliness too acutely because a lot of things in your life are pretty good. You might have a job you like going to to work with those people. You might have a, you know, fairly healthy family of people around you. And so uh, loneliness isn't the thing that would strike you as uh, what you're feeling. There's an uneasiness at times. At times you might feel lonely because even people who have all of these things or even some of them feel lonely sometimes. Uh, Anyone in here never felt lonely? Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It doesn't matter if you feel lonely or not. It doesn't matter if you actually are lonely or not. If you don't have God, you are absolutely alone. 
if you don't have God, you are absolutely alone. Now, how does that register in the brain? How does that register? Well, here's why. Because when the gospel comes into your life and Jesus opens up, and, you know, and God opens up this, uh, this reality, you can't help but look at this one different. And you realize, well, none of this lasts. How secure can I possibly feel if I only have this stuff and I don't have God in my life? None of it can provide ultimate security. That's why he says we, don't, we have here a city that doesn't last. And everything that's in the city and part of the city doesn't last. So if you have everything this city offers, you're still alone if you don't have God. Because everything and everyone will forsake you. They're going to die or you're going to die. Or it's going to pass away. Either by failure or by death. Your death or their death. Nothing can ultimately solve that loneliness problem. I had a... uh, Great relationship with my grandparents. Very, very dicey upbringing. My grandmother and grandfather found a way to be stable pieces in my life. My grandfather was one of the strongest people that I know. I never felt security like when I was with grandpa. He drove a truck, tractor trailer across the country. Every once in a while as a kid, dragged me along on a little trip. And I remember how scary it was at truck stops as a little boy. Big trucks, big truckers. You know, it was just a universe I didn't know anything about. All I know is I had my grandfather's hand and we would walk anywhere and I never felt like there would be a problem at all. It never dawned on me that there could be a problem. But he's been gone for a couple decades now. I got a little security out of it. Not ultimate security, though. He's not here anymore. So now I'm petrified when I go to truck stops. (laughs) See, and here's the thing. Here's the thing about this. No one else can make this promise to you. No one and no thing can make that promise to you. And if you're hearing that promise from something, it's an illusion. Nothing can make that promise to you. And by the way, you can't make it to anyone. My grandfather, I remember sitting around with him one day after I became a Christian as a high school kid. He didn't want anything to do with God. I was sitting around with a bunch of friends and he said... You know, I said, God, I said, Grandpa, with a, well, you know, this is with his buddy, said, I don't, I don't want to be in heaven without you. And he used to say to me, if you're there, I'll be there. That was a promise he can't keep. 
No one else can make that promise to you. And you can't make it to anyone else. So that should bonk you on the head. That's your boom. Does that bonk you on the head? That nothing that makes you feel a little secure is really secure. Because you can lose it all in a second. So how do you strap on, how do you buckle in to the reality that God will never leave you alone? Even though at times you might feel alone. He will never leave you alone. You, you, you have to go back to the gospel. You have to go back to the truth that I think the writer of Hebrews is constantly telling us to do. You have to go back to the cross The cross is the proof that God will never just wander off from you, nor will he ever stomp off from you. Because what he did on the cross, do you remember what he said? Do you remember what God did while he hung on that cross? He he left him. Jesus said, why have you what? Here's what Jesus did. Jesus was forsaken for you so that you would never be forsaken. That's the truth of the gospel. Cosmic, ultimate cosmic loneliness. God felt my loneliness, my separation. He experienced so that I could enter into this kind of relationship. Now listen, this is not the kind of thing you could say, yeah, well, when I was eight years old, that's what I believed. No, that gospel truth has to constantly be drilled in. You gotta strap into it every single day to remember it. Or you'll have a faith that's become a position or a stance or something in your past, but it isn't getting you to the city. And a faith that isn't getting you to the city is not real. It's just as much an illusion because what happens is you've just added it to your pile of other stuff that you trust in. It's not the thing for you. So if you're flying along with God right now and you're saying to him, I don't need to see Bill. I'm good. You get bonked on the head. The knowledge that he will never leave me settles me at the deepest level and provides a a calm that frees me at the surface to be less focused on me be caring, to be kingdom-minded, less needy, more generous. A community like that is a beautiful thing. To be around people who know that calm and call you to that calm when, you, when you're nuts 
and it makes me want to do for him more than I want to do for me. So next week, how does that truth now make its way to the surface? Pray with me, would you? Father, is it possible that we're, we've, for, we've really forgotten what you have done for us? That the gospel has become a distant body of truth that we no longer strap on every day? And because of it, we feel right now, even though we have you in our lives, we feel alone. And even though we feel alone, we need to be reminded today, we are not, 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 not alone. And the proof of it is in your son, who has already experienced ultimate loneliness, cosmic, eternal, divine loneliness that was mine. And as a result of that, your love for me, your forgiveness of me, your bringing us to you is our proof that you will never walk away from us and you will never stomp away from us. In Jesus' name.